middle of the country, but not middle of the road opinions. It's the podcast dedicated to sports in the air capital of the world. I'm going to Wichita. Wichita, Kansas and beyond. With Tommy Castor and Weston Mills, this is Keeper of the Games. Hey, what's up? Welcome into Keeper of the Games. And it's the podcast where we talk about all things sports related in the air capital, Wichita, Kansas and beyond. Along with Weston Mills, I'm Tommy Castor. It's been a little while since we've had uh, a new episode of Keeper of the Games. Our last episode was uh, that awesome interview with Matt Beatty from the Wichita Sports Forum, where we talked about uh, COVID-19 and the brand new uh, basketball, youth basketball league in Wichita, and then his thoughts on the investigation into the University of Kansas. It's been just over a week uh, since we last had a new episode drop. We're back now with a another brand new episode of keeper of the games weston how are things going man doing good it's uh, i think it's kind of um interesting that as sports are starting to look closer and closer for for you and i with this last week probably actually was about the least amount of sports that we had to talk about which is kind of why we took the absence that we did but we're getting closer to sports being back whether it's in a different capacity or not at least they're going to be back um and with that being said we just still haven't had much content to talk about with uh, the wichita kansas city metro sports you know, what's that old saying that it's darkest right before the dawn? Yeah, uh, I think that's that's kind of where we're at right now. I mean, it looks like that dawn that is just right on the horizon that we're almost there with uh, with a bunch of sports in, you know, maybe some different or altered ways uh, moving forward, at least for the near future. But uh, yeah, like you mentioned, there's just there hasn't really been a whole lot happening uh, in the world of sports. And, you know, when we set out to do this podcast, uh, you know, a few months ago, and we were talking about it. We're like, yeah, we're going to do, you know, two new episodes a week. And and I think that's obviously still where we want to be. But if there's no sports to talk about, right. you know, then it would just be you and I, I don't know, sharing recipes, you know, for an hour, <laughs> which I don't think anybody really wants to listen to. So, uh, we, you know, we waited a little over a week. We've got some content to talk about. Uh, and I don't know about you. I'm excited to launch into a new episode. Oh, absolutely. So before we get started, I want to remind you to click subscribe. That way you're notified uh, anytime there's a brand new episode that drops of Keeper of the Games on any of your favorite podcast platforms out there. We're on iTunes, uh, we're on Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast. Uh, and then I also believe we've we've kind of been working on a couple new platforms. I believe we're on the iHeartRadio platform now uh, and also on TuneIn Radio as well. So you can find us pretty much wherever you find all your favorite podcasts. You can also go online to cogpod.weebly.com. That's kogpod.weebly.com. That's our website and on social media at uh, at Twitter, on Twitter and on Instagram at cogpod. And of course, you can always uh, watch full episodes on Facebook and YouTube by searching Keeper of the Games. With that, let's get right into a new episode of the Cogpod. We're going to talk about, well, what else have we been talking about you know, over the last few weeks, but the University of Kansas and the uh, ongoing dispute with the NCAA, the investigation that's been going on into both the basketball and the football programs, but especially basketball uh, at KU. So within the last 24 hours or so from the time that we've recorded this, uh, there's been a kind of an interesting new development with the NCAA. So uh, sources are are saying that uh, basically the allegations against KU, the NCAA, has referred that to an independent panel made up of uh, 15 different members that are not affiliated with the NCAA to hear the case of the University of Kansas. Now, there's a process that has to be gone through before this is official. There's no guarantee that this panel will actually hear the case of the University of Kansas, but uh, kind of an interesting development that the NCAA uh, at least is requesting that uh, they prefer to not hear the case uh, against uh, the the University of Kansas. So Weston, I know you've had a little bit more of an opportunity to look through this than I have. What are your initial thoughts on this new development with the NCAA and KU? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think there's a couple different things that, that jump off the page to me right off the bat. And the first is, why is this not happening more often? I mean, I think I kind of had an understanding of the process that, you know, when there's an NCAA violation and where it goes through. But with the stakes so high for these universities, we're talking, you know, massive amount of monies. I mean, I think of like SMU and the death penalty that they got back in the day. Why are we letting the NCAA make the decision on their own allegations. It seems crazy that an independent panel is not looking at these things anyways. Um, so I, I think it's a really good thing for the NCAA. Um, and I'm wondering, well, I'm not, I mean, I guess I'm wondering that, you know, with it being as high profile as it is, and if penalties do come down, the NCAA has already taken such a bad 
PR hit over the last, I don't know, six months and probably go back farther than that. But, um, you know, that way they can kind of step back and say, hey, look, you know, this is an independent body decided that these allegations were appropriate. It's not just us trying to hammer down and, and stick with with what um, with what what we said all along, even though KU disputes it. So um, I think there's some positives for them. Now, I th- the, I think the interesting part of all this will be is to see if so I think there's a 14 day window, maybe. Nope, 20 day, a 20 20 day, day. 20 day window for KU to either object or um, they can go ahead and just, you know, suggest that they they would prefer to go along with this and and push it towards this uh, IARP. And the reason why I think it's interesting to see what they do to me, and this is just my old, you know, you're taught as a lawyer, when you have the law, argue the law. When you don't have the law, argue the facts. Um, so in, in more or less what you're doing there is you're, it's kind of, you're playing on emotion when you don't have the law on your side. And I, to me, I look at this IARP as a group of individuals who are going to see what what evidence is in this case, what the bylaws of the NCAA says, and particularly as we talked last time, the importance of what what exactly is defined as a booster. And they're going to be able to come out with a much more, I think, unbiased and clean um, approach to that than NCA saying, no, we think it means this, and KU saying, we think it doesn't mean this. So if KU objects, to me, I wonder if that, if that would be an indication that they actually don't think the way it's written is necessarily on their side. And they're making more of an appeal to emotion play than they are actually based on what the, the, the bylaws of the NCAA constitution says. That's one of the things about the NCAA that, um, you know, you kind of mentioned about why wouldn't the NCAA want to always turn things over yeah. to an independent panel uh, The the NCAA historically has a tendency to play judge, jury, and executioner when it comes to any sort of violations or anything that they deem uh, that is inappropriate or potentially breaking, you know, those sacred NCAA rules. And so, you know, a lot of times you don't, you don't particularly see them referring, you know, cases to an independent panel. I think that the fact that the NCAA is, you know, recommending to refer this to this independent panel, not only helps the NCAA as far as transparency is concerned. But I think it's also a good move for for Kansas also. I mean, the, the NCAA is the same organization that has levied these crazy, not crazy, but these these insane, uh, well, I guess that's kind of the same word, these really big, is what I'm, these monumental claims right. against the University of Kansas by terms of their scope and their size. If I'm Kansas, I'm thinking I absolutely don't want the NCAA to hear this right. case. You know, if they're the ones that are, they've levied these charges against us, then why would I want them making the decision about us, you know, in the same breath? Surely, you know, that's not going to, you know, that's not going to bode well for us. But I think having an independent panel, you know, ultimately, I think in in the minds of the University of Kansas, they should be thinking, okay, well, you know, if we can get our case heard by people who have no direct ties to the NCAA, it's a completely independent process. It's, you know, it, it, the, you know, these, these people may have knowledge of what happens in the, in the sports and in the industry, but they're not directly affiliated with the NCAA. Uh, I think for Kansas, they're, they're going to obviously have the opportunity you would think to have a much more fair trial, I guess you could say uh, about these charges. Yeah. And in this panel is pretty interesting too. If you look at it, so there's, it's a 15 member panel and then they select five at random, um, to hear the case. And with that being said, the five at random can be hearing multiple cases at the same time. So we, we really don't at this point have any indication of who might be on that panel. Um, but the, the panel is made up most, I would say, of lawyers and mediators. And mediators are typically either re- retired lawyers or, or judges, um, which is kind of one of the same. Um, so you have a lot of people who are going to look at this from a very analytical, what does the bylaws say? What evidence was actually put on and is accepted as fact and not some sort of, you know, in between black or white, he, he said, she said type of situation. And I think that should bode well for Kansas 
again, if they do really believe their position of the bylaws themselves um, are going to basically, you know, set us free of these allegations that they're, that they're putting upon us. Um, and with that being said, it's just, this is, I'm not sure how, I don't think there's anything relevant to what happens with Kansas, but I thought it was interesting. And maybe you knew this, Tommy, but so the IARP, which is, stands for the independent accountability resolutions process. Um, so it was created in response to recommendations by the commission on college basketball, which was chaired by former secretary of state Condoleezza Rice. So you have some very, I mean, high profile people that have put this together. And then in the same with the, you know, the names involved actually on the panel, you know, it's some lawyers at some big time law firms and, and, and whatnot. So, I mean, you've got some very high intelligent, high ranking people that are a part of this process and, and want to see good done. So I certainly hope Kansas doesn't object. I, it looks like uh, Memphis and uh, NC state both were uh, Memphis requested it and NCA, NC state agreed with it um, when they went through the same process. So I, I would, I would anticipate that Kansas is, is all on board. Just like you said. Yeah. You've got all these, you know, lawyers and, and, you know, former judges and whatnot that are on the panel. And then you have, former Duke and NBA star Grant Hill, who is also <laughs> on the panel as well, uh, which I found to be a little humorous. I think what's even more telling uh, than who is on this independent panel is who is on the panel for the infractions committee with the NCAA. So you've got athletic directors, you've got university presidents, you've got former coaches and other administrators from fellow NCAA schools and conferences. That that that's not always going to be an unbiased group of people. Right. You know, you could have somebody that has bad feelings about, you know, whatever school is, you know, that their case is being heard, you know, by that committee. So, uh, you know, I think that having that, and that would be who would hear, you know, KU's case if it, you know, did not end up going uh, to that independent panel. There is obviously a process that's involved, you know, like you mentioned, KU, you know, can, you know, they, they can appeal it if they want to, that they don't want the case heard, you know, by this panel, the panel themselves could say, Hey, we don't really want to hear this case. So I would imagine that's, you know, kind of in the same vein as like the Supreme court, right? The mm -hmm. Supreme court can say, Hey, I don't, you know, you can refer this case to me, but I don't really want to hear it. Right. And they don't have to, you know, so in that case, then it would go back to the infractions committee with the NCAA. But I think the, one of the, the biggest things to keep, keep our eyes on with this independent panel is that once they make a decision, it's final. There is no appealing uh, by KU. So if it goes against them, you know, it, and so I would imagine historically, if the infractions committee with the NCAA heard a case and the findings were not in the favor of the, of the institution, the institution can then appeal it and go through that whole process, that whole song and dance. That's not the case with this panel. As soon as they make their decision, you know, KU has to live with it. And, and I guess so does the NCAA. You know, if the outcome turns out that the NCAA, you know, uh, is not found favorably in this case, they can't appeal anything either. So it's kind of like a, a one and done, you know, type deal. Um, your thoughts on that? I mean, is that something that I think is a is a benefit or is that, you know, does not giving either either party the opportunity to appeal? Does that hurt that process at all? Well, I think you're you're right in part and wrong in part because I think um, I think with this process, you're right. It can no longer be appealed within the process itself. But I think what the next step for Kansas has been all along, they keep talking about Kansas having the backing to do this, is to actually challenge it in a courtroom setting, actually filing a lawsuit in the District Court of Kansas, saying this, you know. This is, I, I don't even, because I, I don't have expertise in this, so I have no idea what suit they bring. I don't know whether it's breach of contract or what, I don't know, but that is the next step. And I certainly would not think that, and again, I don't know, this is just me speculating that the, this IARP, while it is official and there's no appealing it, I think that just means no appealing it within the process of itself. I don't think it can preclude them from suing the NCAA saying, this sure. is an outrageous, you know, actions that you took on whatever grounds they would be suing them on. But, and I think that would be the next step. So I think it would actually, if, if Kansas thinks that's where it's going, I would think this, this process would be more helpful because it gets them there quicker. Otherwise you do, like you said, if the NCA makes the, the finding themselves, then, you know, Kansas is going to appeal it. They need to exhaust all those remedies first before filing lawsuit. Or they don't probably, probably don't have to, but would certainly want to. So this gets us to point A to point B a lot quicker. 
you know, if this case with the KU and the NCAA ends up in federal court, uh, you know, depending on what happens with this panel and with the NCAA, um, you might not, you might not like this, uh, this reference, but because you're an attorney, but I've always thought, you know, in cases like this, the only people who are making any money are the lawyers. That's you so know, true. It's going to be, it's going to be drug on for a long time. And, you know, the, these, these attorneys are going to be making a lot of money off of both the NCAA uh, and the university of Kansas, which ultimately for the institution, you know, is a lot of money that's coming from boosters and from donors. And that's exactly what's being argued in that case. So that's kind of, uh, that, that would be, you know, yeah. that'd be bizarre, but you know, we're a ways from that for sure. The, my final question about this before we move on, um, I, I do agree with you about your point that you made earlier about how, you know, you would think that this might be favorable to Kansas because with a group that's made up of, you know, people that, that know, you know, they're in the legal profession or they have been, you know, they, they know how that works and they're able to separate, you know, emotion from fact and that sort of thing. Um, going to put you on the spot here. How many people, you know, that you can think of that have, you know, experience, a long time experience in the legal profession, uh, that, that they're going to buy the theory that shoe reps are actually boosters of a university. I mean, that's the whole point that the NCAA has built their case on. I can't imagine that, you know, a lot of folks that have law degrees and that are, you know, that have served mm -hmm. in that profession for a long time and are going to be looking at the facts of the case are going to be able to buy that notion that an Adidas rep is actually the booster of a university. So I think it's interesting because uh, like I had told you, when I read the, the response from the NCAA or the reply from the NCAA to KU's response of the notice of allegations, they, in that reply, had pointed out, hey, and they cited the bylaw, whatever, whatever, specifically points out that a booster can be a, uh, or I'm sorry, a shoe rep could be a booster of, of the university. But without the full context of what's the bylaw, and I never got around, and I wish I would have, to looking at, at finding those bylaws and seeing what the full context of that section says, um, the problem that you know a lawyer, lawyers on this panel are going to have is when it's not clear, the next thing you do in your, in your legal steps would be to go to precedent, go to case law. Well, there's not really going to be that here because the NCA has had a joke of a system from day one. So they don't have they, they've been all over the board on, on where their decisions are. Their precedent never means anything to them. It's one way, one the other. And, and really, this case with Kansas is kind of a case of first impression. I mean, at least to this level of allegation. Uh, so they're not, I mean, they're, which is, and I say all that to say what they're going to have to do is go back to the letter of the law. What does that by law say? And does it clearly establish that a shoe company can be? And I got to say, I mean, boy, the, the response from the NCAA, they felt they must, they felt pretty comfortable that, that, that was written into the bylaw. Um, so I, I don't have a legal opinion on whether they were fluffing their position or, you know, falsely being confident in what it says and weren't giving the full context, but it, I mean, it's definitely going to be interesting. You know, I think that we've talked about this case in about four or five different episodes of the podcast and I'm going to hand it to you. I think that's the first time I've ever heard you be negative about the NCAA. Like you actually <laughs> talked about how their system was a joke as far as hearing cases and that sort of thing. So we finally got that out of you for sure. But uh, but yeah, we'll definitely keep an eye on uh, how this develops and, and what this ends up looking like. I mean, obviously, we are nowhere near the end of it. Uh, but it is interesting to know that now the NCAA has referred the case to an independent panel. We'll make sure to keep you posted on future episodes and get Weston's pretty solid legal opinion on everything as well. You know, one thing That's I rough. will mention is that th this, this podcast is going to be a lot different when games actually start again. And we're actually talking about the games at hand <laughs> as opposed to legal battles in the courtroom. I, I think the, the whole tone of the podcast may change quite a bit. I think I, we're going to stay I, on the, you know, I think I wanted to start, start the podcast to like jump away from my day profession and kind of slip into that sports. And we've ended up <laughs> just me more using, I don't know, about a 10th of, of my law degree to give some sort of, uh, half-efforted legal advice on this podcast. 
There you go. You're putting your uh, your student debt to work, I suppose. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, we're going to stick with the University of Kansas uh, just briefly before we move on on Keeper of the Games and just mention uh, that uh, earlier this week, former Kansas football head coach Pepper Rogers passed away at the age of 88. So he coached the Jayhawks from 1967 to 1970. Uh, and probably the, the biggest thing that he's known for uh, during his tenure at the University of Kansas was leading KU to its second Orange Bowl appearance, uh, and that was in 1968. That season, he led KU to a nine and two overall record and a share of the Big Eight Conference title. Uh, and they actually finished the season at number six in the national rankings. Now he coached for four seasons at KU. Uh, he led the Jayhawks to a 20 and 22 overall record while being named Big Eight Coach of the Year twice. Uh, he went on to have a, a, a long football career after he left the University of Kansas. But you know, West Weston, I gotta I gotta mention, you know, obviously. Uh, you know, 20 and 22 is just under 500. They did go to an orange bowl. You know, he was named coach of the year a couple different times. Um, I think that Kansas fans would kill for a 20 and 22 record over the course of four seasons. And, you know, I'm sure back in that day, they probably thought, well, that's a little bit mediocre. Um, Pepper Rogers, you know, obviously a great coach for KU back in the late seventies. Yeah. Tommy, we all know what you think of Les miles and where this team's headed. You made it clear when you said your team Mizzou, we heard it all in the last podcast. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> no, I, I mean, but yeah, I mean, you know, and sometimes you've got those coaches that kind of, you know, notwithstanding what the record was, but you know, when they do things for a program, take, I mean, take them to a next step, even if it is a, you know, a, like you said, s slightly above or below 500 record, you know, taking Kansas to an orange bowl. I mean, those are all big steps that can kind of move a program along, even if you only do, you know, win a handful of games. It's, it's some big moments that can really kind of leave a legacy with the university. Yeah, no, without a doubt. And I do have to, you know, point out, I, I do like Les Miles. You know, I, I, I thought that was a big splash of a hire for KU, um, you know, but obviously, you know, things are still a little bit tough there in Lawrence. And, you know, Pepper Rogers was a, a guy back in the late 60s for the Jayhawks that, uh, you know, had had some good success for KU. Uh, he passed away earlier this week at the age of 88. We're going to move on and talk about the sports topic that the entire world has been talking about for uh, the last, I don't know, five weeks or so. And that is the last dance. Now, we did mention a little bit about the last dance a couple of weeks ago on a previous episode and about the Kansas State connection with Bulls assistant coach Tex Winter and how he also was the head coach of the Wildcats in Manhattan for a few years, actually for almost 15 years. Um, you know, so we did talk about the last dance a little bit, but only in that context. The documentary now has wrapped up on ESPN, obviously the story of Michael Jordan and the the Bulls of the, the late 90s and their dynasty. Uh, the documentary is all done now. I don't know about you, Weston. I could have went for another five or six episodes. That was just, that was an incredible piece of television. Yeah. I mean, it, it really was. And I, my wife watched every episode with me as well. And, and, you know, she's a big basketball fan, but we were talking about how, you know, I remember growing up, you know, in 97, the 97, 98 season, I was eight years old. I absolutely remember watching Michael Jordan play basketball as a kid, but not having a grasp on all the other stuff that was going around all that. I mean, I certainly don't remember any, you know, the context of this being kind of the last ride to contract negotiations with Pippen, really the level of even I guess looking back and, and this is kind of a weird word to use the struggle of Michael Jordan really on, you know, talking about how he was just exhausted. He was tired. Like he just seemed so superhuman when I was a kid. So I thought it was just so cool to kind of get the fill in, get the context of really a, a lot about his career and, and kind of get a little bit more, um, you know, than just the highlights that you remember. I mean, you remember the, you remember the, the push off, uh, with Byron, Byron, uh, Russell, Scott, Scott, dang it. Sorry. Um, you remember the, the fist pump against Cleveland. You remember him standing on the, on the, uh, announcer's table with the confetti coming down with his hands raised. I mean, you can remember the photo of him wrapped up with the, with the trophy crying. I mean, you remember all those iconic moments, but it was so cool to get the full context with it as well. And in here, so many other people talk, I, I mean, it just, it was a fantastic documentary. Yeah, no, I agree. And you know, I, I never get caught up in the debate of, 
who's a better player all time, MJ or Kobe or MJ and LeBron. Like, or, you know, I never, I've never really gotten into that um, primarily because the game then is so different than the game now, you know? And, and I think the, the biggest, uh, you know, example of that was watching that documentary and watching the, the last, it was either the next to last or the last episode and watching the absolute battle between Dennis Rodman and Carl Malone mm-hmm. and how they're pushing each other on the floor over and over again. Not even a foul was called. I mean, it just didn't happen. The game was so much more rough back then. You look at the Pistons teams that, you know, their whole strategy was to just beat the crap out of Jordan, you know, and, and they were the bad boys and that's what they did. A lot of physicality, you know, even saw that back in the eighties with the Celtics and, you know, they were a, a pretty blue collar team and they were tough and you know they like to get you know they like to kind of tussle down low the game today is so much i don't want to say it's more athletic but it's a lot more finesse based i guess you know and there's just not that rough and tumble attitude like there was back then and so you know when you're looking at michael jordan playing in the 80s and 90s kobe playing in the 90s and 2000s and lebron playing in the 2000s and 2010s and beyond completely different completely different sports altogether. Mm-hmm. So I don't ever get caught up in, in who was better. I will say though, that there has not only, not only did Michael Jordan set an example of the way that, uh, you know, sports stardom can transcend sports and he can become the biggest person on the planet. But also on top of that, you know, he basically, uh, set the mold for these guys, you know, the amount of money that you can make on endorsements, the way that you can market yourself. Um, yeah. And so without a guy like Michael, you wouldn't have all of these athletes that are able to bank so much money, you know, on, on their talent and their athleticism. And the thing about Michael was that he knew it. He knew that he was marketable. And so everything he did was through that vein. I mean, he ran it through his head of, how does this play for the overall Michael Jordan brand? And nobody had ever thought about that before, you know? And so you, know, you even look at, you know, the, the shoes and the Nike contract. I love that story about, you know, when he was, um, you know, there were shoe companies that wanted him. He didn't even want to go meet with Nike, you know, and now look at where Nike is today because of Michael Jordan, you know, he started that whole thing. So, you know, I think not only was he obviously a brilliant basketball player, but he was a brilliant marketer as, as well. That's what I do for a living. And so just, you know, looking at the way that he was able to take his talent and turn it into so much more cash than what he would make on the basketball court is pretty impressive to me. And I'll tell you what, and I completely agree. And I think that was definitely one of my biggest takeaways too. But the thing about the marketing with me that I watched that documentary and maybe they just did a great job on this documentary of, of wrapping it up this way, but I left that segment or that portion that information of the documentary thinking i don't even know that jordan necessarily cared about the cash as he just wanted to be the have the best brand of basketball equipment shoes whatever out there he just wanted the jordan brand to be the best that guy could not be competitive at anything he was full in on and i thought it was kind of interesting too because they kind of they they touched a little bit on um and now i don't remember but the the politician that he didn't back um you know that was african-american and there was kind of some stuff about that and i kind of left it thinking to myself you know man but here's the thing jordan to me strikes me as the kind of guy that hey i don't pay attention to politics enough and i if i can't go into it with the best knowledge and being competitive at knowing everything about i'm not gonna do it that i mean it was just almost kind of like that i mean his competitive competitiveness, I think was the ultimate takeaway of this documentary for me was just, it's a whole different mindset that you have to in part be born with. I think, I think it is just genetic to some degree. And then just the the next level of pushing yourself to doing anything and everything it takes to be best. And and I think that came across kind of the, one of the biggest moments probably of, of the show, right. was when he kind of had that moment where he was talking about his teammates and how he pushed them and, you know, and that he kind of broke down a little bit when he was saying, you know, I, that's how I play. And if you don't want to play that way, that's fine. And he kind of had to pause and take that moment, you know, and say, Hey, we're taking a break. And you can tell it was a real genuine, authentic moment because he just, I mean, he cared so much and it, it, it obviously it, it had to hurt him a little bit to, to destroy, not destroy. That's probably the wrong word, but you can't build relationships. Um, to the fullest extent when you are as cutthroat as Michael Jordan at, at winning or being the best at whatever craft you have. And it's, 
Um, that was just such an interesting dynamic, I thought, to the whole documentary. Yeah, you know, so you kind of mentioned the competitiveness as the biggest takeaway from, I, I think, a positive perspective. I kind of take it from a negative perspective, kind of piggybacking on what you were just saying about his teammates. I, and I love Michael Jordan. I always have, you know, obviously the guy is, in my opinion, the, the best basketball player that's ever played the game. Uh, that being said, I thought it was really telling the way that his, uh, the way that his teammates spoke about him in the documentary. You never heard any of them saying, Oh my God, we loved Michael so much. He was like a brother to us. Like that never happened. You almost got the sense from all his different teammates that they were respectful of his game. They were respectful of, of his competitiveness and of his talent, but there weren't a whole lot of warm and fuzzies there really. I mean, they knew he was the leader and, and that's fine. I think to an extent, one of the, what I read an article uh, a couple of weeks ago, right as the documentary was right in the middle of it. And it was contrasting Michael Jordan with Bill Russell from the Celtics back in the sixties and how Bill Russell had won a, you know, a bunch of titles, you know, with the Celtics back then and how these two guys were opposites, but the success, you know, was there for both of them as, you know, leaders of, of their individual squads. And it talked about how Michael Jordan, uh, was prickly and not in, in some cases, not a great teammate, you know, like he was constantly writing these guys, belittling them, making fun of them, putting them down, you know, just, uh, just not really being super warm and fuzzy with them. But then on the outside to the public, he was air Jordan, right. And he had this brand and he would talk to anybody and he, you know, had all of the, you know, you saw him on every commercial. He did a movie with bugs, bunny, you know, and was this consummate, you know, public face of Michael Jordan. Then you had Bill Russell back in the 60s who loved his teammates, nurtured his teammates, encouraged his teammates, but he was really kind of a jerk to anybody on the outside. He didn't like to talk to the media. He didn't like to talk to fans. He didn't really do a lot for anybody outside of it, but his teammates would tell you, man, we loved Bill Russell. Like He was just incredible to play with. And I just thought that was really interesting as it kind of contrasted those styles. Mm -hmm while still showing that both of these guys had tremendous success with their total teams. So it kind of led me to believe my, my point in, in being is that there's really not just one blueprint to make it work, right? right? It depends on who you are. It depends on what your personality is. It depends on who you have around you, who your coach is, your teammates, your front office, all of that. And, you know, I know one of the, probably the biggest quotes that um, really motivated Michael uh, and, and I think probably precipitated the breakup of the Bulls was when Jerry Krause, the GM, made the comment about, you know, teams don't win championships, organizations win championships. And that just set Michael and Scotty off for sure. And that really ruined the relationship with, with Jerry Krause. And I don't like Jerry Krause, but he he does kind of have a point. Like, I think that was the perfect union of an entire organization with the Bulls in the 90s to come together and win six championships in eight years. Don't get me wrong. Michael, Scotty, Phil, the entire group, they led the charge, but you had the front office there to make sure everybody got paid, make sure the lights stayed on. It was the organization. So I, I don't know. I just kind of thought that was interesting. The other, you know, and you're actually absolutely right. And the thing that the, the parallel to me that was uncanny was the bulls of the nineties to the Patriots of now. And you talk about, I mean, Jerry Krause is, and I get it's different because it's GM and coach, but Bill Belichick, where Belichick, yeah. he does not care what you've done for this organization. It is about what is the best move for this organization. And when that, if that meant letting Tom Brady walk out the door because he thinks we're not going to overpay for a quarterback, no matter what he's done for the organization, he's going to do that. And that was kind of Jerry Krause's mentality. I yeah. mean, and, and you can, again, and it's kind of that same thing, right? Where you talk about, and it's not, I mean, you're talking about Jordan pushing his teammates and maybe it not being as fun to play with Jordan other than the winning is fun. And that's kind of that same way with Belichick. Like so many players that go in there and just say, boy, yeah, we won, but it was miserable doing it. Um, and, you know, and not that, and there wasn't necessarily a suggestion from the Bulls players that it was miserable doing that. But, you, you know, just like you mentioned, kind of that same, hey, Jordan was really tough on us, that same feel with the Patriots. And yet in, in you know, Looking at what it takes to produce and win at that level and so consistently, it seems to be a theme that continues to run out. It's just very, very um, interesting. Uh, you know, it's 
while of course it was a, a a documentary on Michael Jordan in the last season and what they're doing, it really was kind of I thought a cool look into like winning and success. And and you're right. I mean, I yeah. think I, I you know I think you're really hitting the nail on the head too by saying, look, there are other ways to do it. But I mean, Michael Jordan being accepted as you know the best basketball player of all time with you know one or two maybe arguments, um, you know here's how he did it and look how extreme he had to be to get to where he was. It's just, that's just a cool, a whole nother cool dynamic than just caring about the bulls in the nineties and Jordan. It was just an awesome documentary at a time when we needed to have that documentary. And, you know, absolutely no respect or no, no disrespect intended to the late Kobe Bryant, but you know, Michael Jordan did mama mentality before Kobe Bryant did, That's you right. know, and, and so everybody always talks about Kobe and, you know, win at all cost, you know, type attitude. That was Michael. Yeah. That was Michael before it was Absolutely. Kobe for sure. You know, you mentioned uh, going back kind of on the coaching, you know, the coaching tree, the coaching segment, talking about Bill Belichick. I think that, I mean, everybody knew uh, how amazing of a basketball player Michael Jordan was. Um, I mean, that's no, that's no debate. I mean, even for people that say that guys like Kobe and LeBron are better than Michael, they're still putting Michael in the top three. You know, he's, he's, if he is, if not the top, he's in the top three, uh, best basketball players of all time. What I, so everybody knew that that wasn't a secret. What I think that this documentary showed more than anything else, in my opinion, is how great of a coach Phil Jackson is. Yeah. I mean, you look at the, the, the team that he had the last couple of years and you've got Michael Jordan, who you have to try to find a way to coach the best, the best player on the planet at the time. You know, how do you coach a guy like that? A guy like Scottie Pippen, who has tremendous talent is injury prone and kind of a whiner, you know, and kind of complains about a lot of different things. He was underpaid, but you know, he, when he's not happy, he's going to let you know, Dennis Rodman. I don't have to say anything more. I mean, managing a guy like Dennis Rodman and making him play well under you, the, the cast of characters that Phil Jackson had, plus trying to manage a relationship with a general manager that he despised in Jerry Krause, Phil, there's not a better basketball coach uh, in, in in NBA history, in my opinion, than Phil Jackson. And I think that this documentary uh, proved it, and I think it reminded people that maybe had forgotten uh, just a phenomenal job by Phil. Well, and, and that's a good point, too, as you talk about Phil and then Dennis Rodman and like just the ability as a coach to know that what you need to do is let Dennis Rodman go to a WWE event and miss practice during the NBA finals. But he knew that's what Dennis needed. Just like when he let him off to go, you know, to go to Vegas, there's not many coaches. I feel like that would get that, you know, and that, that wasn't incredible. And I'll tell you the other, other important or, figure that I don't think is going to be talked enough about from this documentary was Tim Grover, Michael Jordan's trainer who also trained sure. Kobe Bryant. I mean, boy, how about that guy talking about some of the biggest names? I think uh, I also saw he worked uh, with Dwayne Wade. Um, so then Kobe, then Michael, um, you know, I mean, he's just had fantastic success. You got to kind of wonder, and he, he's got a good book, Relentless. I, uh, my wife has a book and she's read it and she said it was awesome. I, I haven't read it myself, uh, but boy, that guy, he deserves maybe a little bit more credit than he's getting. Sure. I, I walked away from the documentary, you know, obviously impressed by, by Michael as I always have been, but I'm not going to lie. I actually walked away feeling a little sad for Michael too. Yeah. He's got more money than God. He's had more success than anybody else. I mean, the, the guy has built this incredible brand, but I, it made me wonder if he's a little lonely because, you know, I, you, we did see his kids. He's got a family and all of that. But if you noticed all of his friends that were interviewed were people that work for him. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, so like I, I noticed there's one guy that kept, you know, interviewing and it said, I don't remember his name, but it said, you know, personal assistant and best friend. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're paying him a lot of money, you know, to be your, your best friend, basically, you know, his trainer is his friend, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much anybody his, you know, you see, the you security. saw all the, the footage of him at the arena with his security mm-hmm. guards, you know, and those security guards were like best friends to him. So it makes me wonder because of that competitiveness and because of how he could be kind of a prick sometimes, or a lot of the time, it makes me wonder, were there really any authentic relationships outside of people that he was paying to spend time with him every day? Right now. And I, and I don't know, and I'm not suggesting that you're wrong. Cause I don't know, but I guess when I watched the documentary, I, 
took it more as the guy that was listed as his best friend was like, oh, how cool would it be to grow up being Jordan's friend? And then he just pays you to be his personal assistant. But no, I mean, you're exactly right. right. And I thought it was the whole just the whole dynamic with his security team, I thought was really interesting because that's who he had. He had to spend so much time with them. And then it's like that kind of end up becoming kind of his only only friends. I mean, it is sad. Um, you know, and, and that kind of goes back to, it thought it was, uh, well, first of all, the fact that they could get Barack Obama to be interviewed for yes. this, I mean, says a lot about Michael Jordan. Um, but when he was kind of talking about, you know, Hey, look, he, not only did he transcend what, you know, and at the time, what an African-American athlete could be, but he did this without social media and was still the biggest name. The, I mean, opened up international markets for the NBA with yeah. no social media, literally just crafted his name on his game says so much about him and you know and it's it that's why i think it's so interesting to see how you know you get the athletes today their ability to be so connected with everyone and yet jordan is still the biggest name out there and he did it without all of that is i think speaks incredible volumes to to him and what he's accomplished Sure. So uh, we'll close this topic. I've got one one story to tell you from my childhood. So obviously, I'm a little bit older than you, um, a couple of years older than you, not not by a ton, a couple of years older than you. And I think it was probably 1993, 1994. And, you know, I was a big NBA fan, you know, back in those days, loved Jordan, loved the Bulls. My parents gave me the choice. They said, all right, we're going to buy you an NBA jersey to wear. And, you know, we didn't have a ton of money growing up and I didn't have like a ton of, you know, sports stuff to wear. Uh, and I think it was like back to school season. And so my parents were like, we'll buy you an NBA jersey. Uh, and I had a choice between two. I could either get a Jordan Bulls jersey, the red one, or I could get a blue Shaquille O'Neal magic jersey. And I chose the Shaquille O'Neal magic jersey. And I'm... 34 years old right now. And I regret that. And like, <laughs> I, I've not seen that Jersey, you know, for in forever, but, uh, I wish I had a Jordan bulls Jersey and I, I didn't get one. I chose Shaquille O'Neal. I don't know why, uh, that, that decision haunts me to this day. I don't know though, Tommy, if you went to a, if you went to a college frat party these days, you might, you might be uh, the cool guy with the, the magic Shaq Jersey. That's kind of a relic, probably a little True. harder, harder to find. You'd be the the guy with yeah. the cool jersey. And that was like the that was the old school original magic <laughs> yeah. logo. And it was like the it was the blue with the white pinstripes uh-huh. down it. I mean, it was a cool looking jersey, <laughs> but it but it wasn't Michael Jordan cool, I'll tell you that much. Uh hey, we're gonna transition real quick and just kind of talk just briefly about the real, like the kind of the first real live sporting event uh that happened over the weekend, and then another live sporting event happening this coming weekend, and both in the world of golf. So this last Sunday was the Taylor made driving relief a charity match and that pitted Rory McIlroy and Dustin Johnson against Ricky Fowler and Matthew Wolf. It was a Seminole golf club in Florida. Uh, and it was just a, a straight up match play, you know, between these two teams and all the money, uh, was raised for a couple different organizations. I believe the nurses foundation was one of them and the CDC foundation was the other. Uh, and it was on NBC. Uh, it was kind of surreal watching these guys playing golf, wearing shorts, carrying their, their own bags. There were no caddies. Uh, you know, they were mic'd up. So they kind of talked the whole time, no crowds, nobody was there other than them. And, you know, a few officials and camera people, even the commentators were not there. They were all at home or in different places. Uh, it was kind of bizarre to watch and it was, you know, just kind of a different way to watch golf. But I'll tell you what, I don't know if you had a chance to watch any of it at all, but it was just kind of neat to actually have a live sporting event happening again, albeit one that was a little bit bizarre. Well, and that, you know, those are the kind of things too. I think people always love things that are relatable, especially when you're talking about, you know, big time athletes that you don't normally get, you can't, you know, it's hard, so hard to relate to them on a, on a, realistic level. And so when you see them having to carry their own bag, just wearing shorts, no caddies, I mean, that makes it feel like it's like you and your buddies out there, you know, just golfing on a Saturday afternoon, you know, until they, you know, smash one, three twenty right down the middle of the fairway. (laughs) Then you kind of realize it's not the same, but you know, I, I always think when we get those opportunities, um, to, to watch sporting events that are done a little bit different and a little bit more personal, I always think it's, you know, just a really neat opportunity to, to see that. 
Yeah. So actually, uh, you know, it, it looked like the, the match was, I don't know if it was tied or if there just hadn't been a winner that had been declared by the end of 18 holes. And so they, they kept playing. And so they did instead, they went back to the 17th hole and the closest to the pin from 120 yards out, Rory McIlroy was the closest. So he and Dustin Johnson, uh, won the match. And then obviously, you know, all the money went to charity. I believe over $5 million was raised overall, uh, for these two charities for COVID-19 relief. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the fact that, you know, they, they carried their own bags and, you know, at one point I noticed that, you know, Ricky Fowler had out, you know, his, his laser finder, you know, to figure out his yardage, you know, from where he was standing <laughs> yeah. and, and that, you know, it kind of looked like the one that I have. I mean, you know, so these things were, you know, it's just kind of fun to kind of see them, you know, in more of a casual setting. And one of the things that I've always said about PGA tour golf is that I feel like there would be a much bigger market for fans if it, if they didn't take themselves so damn seriously all the time, you know, Mm -hmm. if there were things that were a little bit more casual, you let the players wear shorts when it's 110 degrees outside in, in July, when they're playing tournaments, they won't do that. You know, you, you kind of let them, you know, things hang loose a little bit. And I know that golf is, is proper and it's a gentleman's game and all of that, but I think they're missing out on an opportunity. And, And I think that this event this past Sunday kind of proves that, that there's a market for more casual golf, you know, to be on TV. It doesn't have to be so prim and proper all the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I had saw some commentary from our friend Tyler Litton saying that he was, he was kind of suggesting that he was what he loved, loved the event, but was almost wanting a little bit more like trash talk or talk back sure. and forth between the players. And, and I think you're right. I think, I mean, and you can even look to other sports like, you know, the NBA does a great job at marketing their individual players because, you know, you're just seeing them out there in shorts and a jersey as opposed to like the NFL that has sometimes has a hard time marketing players outside of the quarterback because they've got pads and all this stuff on and they just don't you know it doesn't you don't feel like you're connecting with them on a personal level and just like you said like with the golf you know when you let them be like the boys on a Saturday you know you feel a little bit more of a personal connection and it's just can be more enjoyable to watch. I think there may be more trash talk on the upcoming event this weekend that's <laughs> going to be on TNT, and it's the match part two. And this time, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. You've got Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning on one side and Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady on the other side. Uh, I think this is going to get massive ratings, you know, for sure, because you've got, you know, obviously these four superstars that are playing in a golf match together. I think there's going to be a lot more trash talk. Uh, I, I don't know if you follow golf a whole lot, but obviously you're a football fan. I'm going to put you on the spot. Who do you have? Do you have Tiger and Peyton or Phil and Tom? Uh, Phil and Tom, because I think my understanding is Tom is a very good golfer. And I mean, uh, you know, obviously Tiger is Tiger, but I mean, Tiger, the difference between Tiger and Phil is probably not as great as the difference between Peyton and Tom, just based on what. And actually, I can't say that I've heard a whole lot about Peyton. I'm sure Peyton Manning is a good golfer where he wouldn't agree to be a part of this but I haven't heard as much about him as Tom. So I'm just on that alone. I would assume there's a bigger gap. So I'm going to go with Phil and Tom. I'm going to say Phil and Tom as well. And that's primarily because, you know, you've got these two guys, Phil and Tom, who are still at the prime of their games, but they're the older guys that are out there. I mean, Phil is on the very, you know, old end, uh, old end of the PGA tour. Tom Brady's on the very old end of the NFL, but they're still, you know, able to go out there and compete and win. Then you've got Tiger and Peyton. Obviously, Tiger is the greatest golfer of all time. And Peyton, you know, is one of the greatest quarterbacks. But both of those guys have had neck and back issues over the last, you know, several years. Peyton's got a fused neck. Tiger's got a fused back. Uh, I I don't think that bodes very well for them when you've got guys like Phil and Tom who are still in tip-top shape. Obviously, Tiger Woods is fantastic, but I got to go with uh, with Phil and Tom for that. So that's going to be on Sunday uh, on TNT, and it should be a lot of fun. We're going to get into the Wichita Whip Around now. I want to mention just, you know, briefly about the Wichita Whip Around. So it was announced earlier this week by Governor Laura Kelly that the state of Kansas will be transitioning from her phase 1.5, as she called it, uh, to phase two effective on Friday. So there had been a lot of discussion and it's really some frustration that had made the news about youth sports not being able to resume practices uh, under the phase 1.5 for this summer. Well, now because the state of Kansas is moving into phase two beginning on Friday, those youth sports are going to be able to begin practices and things like that uh, as the summer goes on. 
um, you know, that does impact some several, you know, several other sports in, across the state, you know, and, and so forth. Uh, but obviously, I guess good news, Weston, now that uh, especially sports here in Wichita, uh, the youth sports are going to be able to resume here come on Friday. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where you certainly hope that, you know, parents have been, you know, kind of partaking in those adv- activities with their kids anyways. But it's not the same as being able to, you know, have your kids out at practice with their team. I mean, there's just... Even, I mean, you can look at it from two different ways. Obviously, we all know the incredible benefits for kids just being involved in team sports and kind of learning the life lessons that they do in that. But especially after we've had our, our you know children cooped up for two, two and a half months now, they were taken out of school, missing their, their friends. I feel like this is such a needed um, time. And, you know, it sounds it sounds like, you know, the way things are progressing and kind of with you know more information from the CDC that it's feeling like this is going to be a much more safe activity than maybe what they were initially thinking. So I think it's it's awesome for the kids that they're going to be able to get out and, and practice and um, and maybe even for you know the dads or uncles or whatever that are playing in their maybe rec league sports or, or you know those kind of things as well. So I think it's going to be good for everyone kind of coming out of this quarantine and, and needing to boost the mentals a little bit. Still no word, though, about the Wichita wind surge and what's going to happen with the minor league baseball schedule. You know, there, there still is a, a plan that's kind of up in the air with Major League Baseball, but no word on really how that impacts minor league baseball. My thought would be, Weston, until the big leagues have their issues sorted out and a plan is in place with them. Uh, I don't think anybody should be anticipating any kind of decision with minor league baseball. We'll have to kind of wait and see what will happen with Wichita wind surge. Yeah, no, I I think you're absolutely right. It will be MLB priority one before you get any type of decision. But I still kind of go back to there's too much money at stake here for them to not figure out something. I mean, I understand that kind of getting fans in the stands is the real main priority because you know to sell advertising i mean nobody wants to buy an advertisement if there's no one there to look at it and they don't most of these minor leagues don't have any type of tv deals but there's just too much money uh to be made for there not to be something to happen and i'm certainly can't suggest what that's going to be but i just i am so hopeful that there will be something to get baseball in the stadium even if we're watching on tv or you know only they're only able to sell sell 50 percent i mean you're Really, if you think about it, I'm sure a lot of those minor league games, I don't know, I've been to obviously watch the Wranglers play. I watched, um, I went to a Nashville Sound game or no, Knoxville Smokies. I'm not sure what they are, but I went to a minor league game in, in Nashville. It's a Cubs affiliate, you know, and those stadiums are hardly ever filled. So maybe you could even let some sort, I mean, if you're going to let people into malls, why can't we figure out a way to let people into a stadium? at 50% capacity or 40 or I mean just say name the number that, that makes sense for everyone and we should do it but I'm hopeful that they'll figure something out I'm going to give you a hot take here really late in the show and so hopefully it's late enough in the show that uh, that nobody even picks up <laughs> on it and I, I don't ever get criticized for it but my hot take is this there will not be minor league baseball this season it will not happen <sighs> and the reason for that is because and I hope that doesn't happen but the reason for that is because I think the the major league baseball will come to an agreement they'll have a, a reduced season of, of games played but those games are going to have to be crammed into a certain number of days. And so they're going to be playing a lot of baseball in a short period of time. You're going to have to have expanded rosters for the major league teams. You're not just going to be able to rely on the 30 guys that are on that squad, on the major league squad like normal. They're going to have to rely on these minor league guys. So it wouldn't surprise me if there were a good amount of minor league players that ended up with the major league squad this year, basically meaning that, you know, that there's, there's no, there's no need for a minor league team this year. So that wouldn't surprise me if that happens. I hope it doesn't, uh, but that's my hot take. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you what, Tommy, I actually don't think that's that much of a hot take. I think maybe, maybe what I was saying was more wishful thinking. Um, but I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I just hope that they can do, I mean, you know, you have enough players at enough levels that hopefully you know, maybe we can shift guys around. They cancel, you know, high A ball or low A ball um, or rookie league, all those different options that they have. So that kind of pushes players up the chain to be able to fill your triple A stadium, your double A stadium or whatever it might be. Um, the, so the only other thing I want to mention on this is kind of unrelated, but it's related to the wind surge. And this is going to be bad podcasting, but great for our YouTube channel. I'm actually rocking tonight 
the No Place Like Home Wichita, Kansas uh, t-shirt that the Wind Surge were selling um, with all the proceeds going to COVID relief. Um, and I, I think there was an actual organization. I should have looked it up ahead of time, but it was tied to COVID relief. Um, so really cool shirts. I don't know if they're still selling them, but I think it was like $25. They look great, fits great. Uh, so there's my uh, big time promo for the Wind Surge pretty awesome that's all that's that's great i love that shirt for sure uh and then you know yeah like you mentioned if uh, you know you want to see that shirt go to our youtube channel uh, and you can watch the full episode and, and see weston uh there rocking that shirt the final thing in the wichita whip around before we uh we transition out of it uh that is related to covid19 and uh everything that's been happening is that we do know that the greg marshall basketball camps here in wichita that were scheduled for this summer have been canceled. So those will not be happening. Uh, you know, not super surprised about that, but um, I know that those camps are usually pretty highly attended uh, here in Wichita. And, you know, kids obviously want to get the chance to go and play in Coke Arena and learn about the game from, you know, Coach Marshall and the staff. Uh, but that, that camp, uh, those camps will not be happening uh, this summer due to COVID-19. So that's going to wrap up our Wichita whip around today. Before we wrap up, we're going to talk about our finally funny, which I feel like it's been a while since we've actually had a finally funny on the show. Uh, but today we, we do have one and <laughs> I know you're really excited to talk about this because of how big of a fan you are of uh, pardon my take yep. and the entire crew there at Barstool Sports. Uh, and, and so I'm not even going to give a synopsis because uh, you know more about it than I do. I'm going to let you give the synopsis about what's been going on with the guy by the name of Coach Duggs. Yeah. So uh, for those of you who don't follow Pardon My Take, uh, which is a, one of the, the biggest sports podcasts really out there, but it's, it's a barstool sports product. Um, it's hosted by Big Cat and PFT. And Big Cat has been doing a Twitch on his old NCAA football. I think it's 2014, whenever, whatever the last season was that they made NCAA football. And so he created a coach called Coach Gus Duggerton. And, um, you know, started off, I, I think he started at Florida state. And then the way that the, the game works is at the end of the season, when you're, when you're in this mode, it like puts offers out there like, Oh, Hey, you're you can either resign with your team or is, you know, putting an offer, um, you know, to go coach wherever else. And when you're coaching, you're actually playing the game too. So that's kind of the part that he, he streams on Twitch. I don't know how many folks we have listening follow Twitch or know what Twitch is, but it's basically for all the, the esports out there. Um, so anyways, he went out to, he, he coached at Florida state, went to um, U, uh, USC and then went to Texas tech and now is at Tennessee. And the reason we tell you all this, the funny part about this is it has absolutely blown up when he went, from UCLA, he had Matt Liner commenting on Coach Gus Duggerton and what he was doing to when he went to um, Texas Tech. That we had Patrick Mahomes retweeting, welcome to, welcome to Red Raider Nation or whatever. Had the actual Texas Tech football team, athletic department, the compliance part tweeted at him saying, hey, we expect a clean program running. Now you've got him leaving for Tennessee and Tennessee, uh, the Tennessee football account rolling out a tweet with, um, you know, him and Phil Fulmer, uh, kind of accepting him in. And, and it's, the, I think that what's kind of added some comedy to him when he was at Florida state, there was a very large gentleman who was a fan of big cat and a fan of Florida state who actually looked like the created video game guy. So he went out and took a photo in a Florida state polo with a little headset on saying he was coach Duggerton. And they have now got that guy to go along and put on a shirt and take photos and stuff all the way to the end. And so, I don't know, Tommy and I talked about it. If you're following along, you'll probably get what's funny about it and the humor behind all these massive organizations, just, you know, recognizing some podcaster who's has a fake football coach. Um, but it's, it's been pretty funny. Who's playing video games. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Like it's not even real football. It's right. a video game. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think, you know, one of the things that is just so bizarre about all of this is that this would never happen in normal times, right? <laughs> if there were actually legitimate sports that were going mm -hmm. on right now, nobody would be paying attention right. to this. But because there's nothing else going on right now, people are going crazy for it, you know? And I just, I thought it was just, you know, nuts that, I mean, when, when I, and I don't know, I don't follow it as much as you do, but I've, I've just definitely seen on Twitter, you know, what's going on with, with coach Duggs and all of that. And it looked like Patrick Mahomes was actually heartbroken <laughs> that that Gus Duggerton, this fictional football coach, was leaving Texas Tech to go to Tennessee. Um, I, I even saw a couple of NFL players that I don't know who they were, but they were alums of 
one of the schools mm-hmm. that this guy was the, the coach at and they're doing videos on social media yeah. you know, about him and about how you know how great it is that he's leading the program and all this <laughs> stuff and and even schools so I, what i've noticed is that big cat uh whenever he's got a big game coming up you know he'll he'll let folks know all right hey i'm going to be pulled you know live you know live streaming this and playing this game on this day at this time versus this opponent even the opponent's programs on twitter are getting involved in it like i I noticed that texas tech was playing kansas and the kansas football twitter you know was all over it you know like Mm -hmm. i don't even know what they were saying but like everybody's trying to get involved in this and it's almost become like the coach doug's movement it's crazy (laughs) it really i mean it's been a complete spectacle and it you know and that's uh I'm obviously I'm a fan of Barcelona, I'm a fan of the part of my take, guys. It's incredible. I, I think the kind of the connection they've made and, and the you know, they come off and I think this is kind of the brand that people are trying to create in podcasts now moving as a whole, but they're just like buddies with all these NFL guys, college yeah. players, like, you know, they had Joe Burrow on. They were t- in Burrow was giving them advice on how to read defenses, but on the video game, I mean it, it is yeah. really just bizarro world, but it's it's been fun to watch. I think that we we need to try to find some kind of angle that we can exploit for our podcast. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what that is, but we need to start thinking about that. <laughs> I'm all in on it. Yeah. The other podcasting note is that, uh, you know, if we can find an angle to exploit, maybe we can end up making close to that $100 million that Joe Rogan is going to be making with uh, with Spotify. Joe Rogan got the I don't bag. Know. Oh, my God. Yeah, we've got a ways to go to uh, to get to that level, but we can get there uh, with your support and you listening to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, so before we wrap up, I want to remind you to hit that subscribe button. That way, anytime we have a brand new episode that drops, you'll be notified on your favorite podcast platform. We're talking iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, all of them. You can find us uh, right there and listen to uh, brand new episodes and archived episodes of Keeper of the Games. You can watch full episodes on YouTube and on Facebook by searching keeper of the games follow us on twitter and instagram at cog pod and of course you can always follow us individually weston tell them your twitter handle at w mills 94 and you can follow me at tweets from tommy until next time for weston mills i'm tommy caster you've been listening to keeper of the games take care guys You've been listening to Keeper of the Games with Tommy Caster and Weston Mills. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and listen on all major podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Find the podcast and videos on Facebook and YouTube at Keeper of the Games and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at CogPod. That's K-O-G-Pod. 